Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and you'll find it on page 1166 of the Church Bibles in the pews, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the whole of it, beginning at verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For, to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet, by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For... We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, so we pray. Heavenly Father, we've been encouraged already by the words you gave to the prophet Isaiah. He says in that same chapter, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And so, Heavenly Father, as we come under your word this morning, we pray that we would not either doubt or delay, that rather you would call us from your word to find that renewal of life, that eternal life which Christ alone can give us. And so call us to trust in him, to turn from our sins, and to serve one another in his name, that we might live as your people and know your presence and power here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll do please be seated. If you'd like to come to uh, 2 Corinthians, the passage that Charles read for us, we are coming to the end.
this morning in our series in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And our service this morning is being led by a retired head teacher, so uh, an appropriate passage to look at where we come to the subject of examinations. It is that time of year when many young people's minds uh, are concentrated, or at least those who teach and parent them hope their minds are concentrated on the exams that are looming in our schools, colleges and universities. Now, for those who are going through the testing process uh, that our society puts our young people through, and I appreciate for some of us that may be a year or two uh, ago, uh, but for those who are going through it, it may not feel like it, but the purpose of examinations are positive. The purpose is to demonstrate that you as the student have acquired the knowledge and skills you've been taught. No teacher wants their student to fail. Indeed, they uh, expend every effort uh, to ensure that when they go to that exam, they will pass, acquit themselves, uh, and demonstrate that they have been well taught uh, and are equipped for the next stage in their lives. And the Apostle Paul here in this final chapter of 2 Corinthians has a similar positive motive as he encourages all of us to submit ourselves to a spiritual examination. Verse 5 really is the center of this passage, uh, and we will read the rest of the passage through this verse. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. The purpose of these verses in 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 13 is to encourage us to test ourselves. It's important. We're not uh, coming under the test of another human being. We are encouraged here to test ourselves. And it's here because this is a kind of mock exam. The actual test is coming on the last day. Uh, Earlier, Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So that day is coming for every single one of us. One day uh, we will appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, uh, and he will pass his verdict on our lives. And as we come to the end of this letter, uh, Paul's encouragement to self-examination now is so that we will be ready for that final examination when it comes on the last day. And so as in school, it's worth taking the mock exams seriously. Uh, This is something I know that teachers wrestle with uh, every time the mock exams come. Uh, It's tempting not to bother with it because it's not the real thing. And as teachers know, that attitude may very well be disastrous when the real thing comes along. The mock exams are there to help you to prepare for the real thing when the day comes. Well, so it is here in the spiritual parallel. Examine yourselves now in the light of the coming day of judgment so that you may be confident that you're ready when that day comes. Is your faith in Jesus Christ genuine? That is Paul's encouragement to us to ask that question of ourselves, not to flinch away from it, but rather so that we might be ready and confident that we're ready when the actual day comes. 
Now, if you've been with us uh, over these last months as we've been working through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, you'll know uh, that this test is necessary for them, just as we will find it is for us. This Corinthian congregation has been dangerously vulnerable to the smooth and seductive teaching of the false apostles of Jesus, who talk much about power and victory, but are actually preaching a different gospel, a different Jesus, and promising the power of a different spirit. We know as well that this church is feeling the pull of the sinful world around them and their sinful nature within them. They're ready to hear a different message, one that will enable them to say yes to both Jesus and sin. That way we may have a veneer of assurance that we are friends with God without having to deal with the difficult lifelong task of actually following Jesus, turning from our sins and letting him be our Lord. Well, if that was true in Corinth, we know, of course, that nothing has changed, and it's just as true in Hartford. All around us are those who will tell us about Jesus, and a different Jesus, a Jesus remodeled to fit our agenda, or our culture, or our appetites. Uh, Within us, our sinful hearts, we long for the same things the Corinthians did, and so we're all too ready to listen to that message, to know that God loves me, but yet I somehow can dispense with this costly call to discipleship. That cheap grace, the message of the false apostles then, is alive and well and just as destructive in our culture today. And Paul's concerns here for his Corinthian congregation are strikingly similar to those that the master himself expressed towards the end of his famous sermon on the mount. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You know how that parable uh, continues. Well, so here in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been warning of those he describes as false apostles. But it's the same as Jesus' warning of false prophets. They appear to be genuine uh, to bringing a message from heaven And their message is attractive and has a superficial power. But the fruit of their ministry reveals the ugly reality of its true origin, that it is not from heaven at all. So how then can we avoid that most awful of verdicts on the last day? It is terrifying, isn't it? The prospect of Jesus saying to us, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He's not saying that to those who've never heard of him. He's saying that to those who were doing miracles in his name, driving out demons and purporting to be genuine Christian disciples and preachers. Away from me, you evildoers. 
How then uh, can we be those who so hear the words of the Lord Jesus that we put them into practice? So that we will be like the wise man in that famous picture who builds his, uh, the house of his life on the rock of Christ and who when the storms of God's judgment come on that final day will stand firm and secure. You see, Paul is not adding some layer of complexity or difficulty uh, to the Christian gospel. He's simply applying very directly those words of the Lord Jesus himself to the particular situation in Corinth. And by his Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus is applying those same words of his to the good people of St. John's Hartford today. How will we then build our houses, as it were, our lives on the rock of Christ so that when the storm of judgment comes, we will stand? How will we resist and refuse those false prophets, false apostles, and actually hear the true gospel And respond to it in such a way that demonstrates that God's word truly is at work in us. Now, that's why Paul's mock exam is so important. That we openly and seriously conduct this act of self-examination. So that when the true day of examination comes, we will stand His purpose here, just as that of the Lord Jesus he is representing, is loving. Christ wants us to stand on that day, not to be lost and swept away in his judgment. Well, before we work through the text and see how this test is applied, I need to say one last word of introduction, because I have in mind two kinds of people who I want to speak to before we come to the application of these tests. You see, some of you uh, who are listening to me this morning uh, doubtless are thinking, I just don't need to worry about this at all. Uh, You're super confident that the last day will bring only accolades, for you are a good person and your conscience is clear at what a privilege other people have in knowing you. Friend, Paul's exhortation to test yourself includes you and me. There are none of us who uh, are excused from the need to do this act of self-examination. We need to ask whether our confidence is well-placed, whether our conscience, if it clears us, is functioning properly. When you stand before Jesus in all his holiness and purity, well, how will your goodness and achievements appear on that day? Don't think that this does not apply to you. You perhaps haven't thought about doing an MOT on your soul for many a long year. My friend, you are first in the queue of those who need to hear this word today. But there's another group, and everything I have said so far, or rather everything that Jesus and his apostle have been saying so far, is an absolute terror. And they cannot wait to be out of this building, and they are fearful of everything that they might hear this morning. You are constantly testing yourself. You are constantly fearing that you will be found wanting, and yet you trust and love Jesus. You know your sins and flee from them. You know that you will only ever stand by his grace and cleansing and mercy alone. Well, this part of God's word is for you, but you need to actually listen when Paul says, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? And you need to lay off yourself for a little while. 
Of course you're a sinner. It's only sinners who are welcome in the kingdom of God. Of course there is work to do in your life. What's the purpose of the remainder of our lives until we go to glory? Apart from the Lord renewing us, renewing our minds, transforming us more and more into the glorious likeness of Christ, as Paul said back in chapter 3. Are you not perfect? Good. You're in honest company. And you're among those whom the Lord is drawing to himself and has come to dwell in. It's been said that the purpose of preaching is to disturb the comfortable and to to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. Well, never more was that so than here, where the apostle of Jesus exhorts us to examine ourselves to test whether we are in the faith. Don't think you can avoid the question. Don't think you can't answer the question. So what are the exam questions? There are three. Uh, Are you repenting of your sins? Are you trusting in the real Jesus? And are you serving one another? In that sense, when you go into an exam, uh, I'm thinking, well, thank goodness it's not a question about the Aztecs, because I never revised that topic, and it's the one that I did revise. We hear those questions, and we think, well, that's pretty straightforward. Well, of course it is. The gospel is simple. God's word to us uh, is not an exam designed to trip us up. Jesus' first word as he preached was repent and believe the good news. So what else would the test be other than are you repenting and believing the good news? And are you putting that into practice in the way that you love one another as well? So first, particularly uh, rooted in the earlier verses of chapter 13, are you repenting of your sins? Uh, We need to read this in the light of the uh, verses immediately previous, especially the two just before, because there are no chapter divisions or verse divisions uh, in the original text of the New Testament, and uh, here, as often, it's difficult to know exactly where to place uh, a division. So let me reread from verse 20 of chapter 12. I'm afraid, says Paul, that when I come I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two and three witnesses, and so on. So we considered briefly at the end of last week's sermon these two classes of sins, social and sexual. Social sins erupt when we indulge the old man, our proudly selfish and independent sinful nature. And so we look at each other through the eyes of competition and comparison and rivalry. And when I am convinced, subconsciously, doubtless, we're English, most of you are, uh, unlikely to say these things outwardly, but when we're subconsciously convinced that my needs and my opinions and my desires are superior to your needs and your opinions and your desires, well, then we shall quarrel because we will come to it from a different place and we will each stand our ground. When I think that you are doing better than I am, and that's not fair, I will be jealous of you. And we will form factions, and we will be rude about each other. And because there is no shared humility as we look together to Christ's cross for mercy and bow before his risen majesty, the church then becomes disordered and discontented. 
So our social sins erupt from taking our eyes off Christ and putting them back on our sinful selves. And our sexual sins come from the same source, our indulgence of our sinful nature, our refusal to repent. Only this time, the culture of first century Corinth and the culture of the 21st century Western world are remarkably similar. Both encourage every kind of sexual sin, rebranding it as the good life and pouring angry scorn on anyone who dissents. I wonder if you've been following the story uh, of the brave and godly Finnish member of parliament, Paivi Rasinen, uh, who some years ago co-authored with a bishop, uh, can't get much more mainstream than that, uh, a simple booklet uh, outlining uh, the Christian view of human uh, sexuality. Teaching there, as the Bible does, that marriage is the exclusive union of one man and one woman for life, and that marriage is the only godly context for sexual intimacy. She then more recently tweeted a Bible verse, again taking uh, uh, her stand with the Apostle Paul on God's view on sexual morality and immorality. And for doing those two things, uh, she was arrested and tried uh, in a court for hate speech. Uh, Remarkably, wonderfully, uh, she was acquitted uh, by the court. But it says something about our broader Western culture that was simply articulating the Christian moral view in the area of sexuality and marriage, uh, you can get yourself arrested and tried uh, in a European court. Uh, Doubtless there's more of that uh, to come. Just try posting uh, anything orthodox and intelligible uh, around gender and sexuality from a Christian perspective on Twitter, uh, and you'll discover how quickly the hate comes back at you in 140 characters. Now, the culture we live in is remarkably similar to the culture of first century Corinth. And in, therefore, this context, the gospel calls us first not to denounce our culture, but to make sure that with its pressure to conform, we are repenting of our sins. Resisting those voices that tell us we can have the love of God and the self-indulgence. That's the work of the false prophets, false prophets, false uh, apostles. Instead, our story is this, as Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 6. Uh, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. See that language again? Uh, there's so many around with their smooth words. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The church is not the place where those who've never sinned find a welcome. It would be an empty place or a dishonest place if it claimed to be that. The church is the place where those who have sinned come to find that we may be washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. By we may be sanctified, that is, brought into the kingdom of a holy God and enabled to stand before him. How we may be justified old children's song, so that we will be treated just as if I'd never sinned. And all because uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and applied to us by the Spirit 
of God. And so now as he comes to the end of his second canonical letter to Corinth, uh, Paul calls out those who want it both ways. They want forgiveness and they want to continue in sin. And he says, no, Jesus calls us to repentance. It's a warning we need to hear. And he will use his power as the apostle of the risen Christ to press the point home. He doesn't want to use his power. Now, that's been a theme throughout this uh, last four chapters of the letter, verse 4. Uh, he will only use his power to serve his hearers. If he ignored their sin, he would not be serving them. Because although they would prefer him to be silent now on the day of judgment if there is no repentance. Well, then they're only lining themselves up to hear those words of Jesus. I never knew you. And so he speaks. Awkwardly, doubtless, because his culture was like ours. And so concerned is he for their standing on that last day that he will warn them and repeat his warning and use every ounce of his apostolic authority to call them to repentance. Because they will hear a hundred voices again before they hear his And all of them will be telling, don't worry about it. It's just old-fashioned. You can know that God loves you and you don't have to change at all. And so he will press the point home because he is the spokesman of the authentic Jesus. And he does does so. He does so in a Christ-like way with patience and care. Uh, He quotes the Old Testament standard proof. Uh, Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He may mean that figuratively. Two or three witnesses are his two and now planned third visit. And if so, that would point to his patience. Well, so we should be patient as well. When people start to follow Jesus Christ, it takes time to grow in obedience to God's word. And sometimes the church can be too lenient when new Christians struggle with the same sins that many of us struggle, materialism or gossip. And at the same time, too judgmental when the Christians struggle with sexual sins. Oh, Paul was patient. Two visits, now a third. And he's still persevering with them, calling them to repentance, to turn again, to follow Christ. He also may mean it, though, quite literally, in which case the warning is not to rush to judgment. I don't just assume that because someone uh, tells you about a person and uh, something negative about them that it's true. I had that with someone this week and it was a delight uh, to be able to put this person straight and say, no, you've heard that rumor about so-and-so. It's just not true. And I can tell you that because I know them and I know the situation. Also here, Paul says, two or three, uh, make sure uh, that if there really is sin to call out, that you're not just going on gossip. You're not just going on innuendo. And either way, patiently, carefully, unflinchingly, Paul calls, or rather Christ speaking through Paul. Look at verse 3. Uh, is exactly what he says here. We are called to turn from our sins and to do battle with them throughout our pilgrimage on earth. Later on in the uh, chapter, verse 9, uh, Paul says there, we, uh, our prayer is for your perfection. And the same word occurs uh, in verse 11, aim for perfection. Uh, The word perfection is is not a good translation. Uh, The word in the original language has the sense of restoring or renewing. Outside the New Testament, uh, the word is used for the setting of broken limbs. In the gospel accounts, it's used uh, to describe the mending of torn fishing nets. 
So it is here with us and those sins with which we battle. As Christ calls us to turn from our rebellious ways, so he restores us and renews us, transforms us, as Paul said back in chapter 3, more and more into the likeness of his own perfection. And so our calling is to grow in obedience, turning from, turning to, and in that knowing his faithfulness with us all the way. Second, are you trusting in the real Jesus? Here we come to verse 5 with which we started. Uh, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The word the is important. Uh, This is not whether you are believing because people believe all sorts of things and follow all sorts of spiritual masters. Paul is saying, test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That is the revealed gospel, the message that Christ brought and that he entrusted to his apostles and that we have written for us here in the scriptures. And as a very uh, brief overview, think of what Paul has taught us just in this second letter. Uh, This is the message that fulfills everything God promised in the first 39 books of the Bible that we called the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verse 20, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Our faith is a biblical faith, built on the foundation of the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures, and now fulfilled in the message of the apostles uh, and showing us how Christ is everything uh, that was formerly promised. Our faith is in Christ alone who renews us. Chapter 4, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To be in the faith, therefore, is to come to know God in the face of Christ. And when we depart this body, we go home to be with the Lord. That was back in chapter 5. We know Christ. We are in Christ. We see his face, as it were, by faith now, and the day will come when we shall see it quite literally. And what is the basis of our confidence, the basis of our knowledge of God, uh, and that sure hope we have? It is the glorious exchange of chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, that is Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How will we ever stand on the last day? Will it be because uh, of the quality of my repentance or the fact that I didn't do quite so many public sins as maybe some other people have done? No, and never. The only way we will stand before God on the day of judgment is because God made Christ, who had no sin, to be the entirety of my sinful and evil heart, and yours as well. And that perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus was given to us in its place. A glorious exchange. My sin given to him, his righteousness given to me. And that is the basis of our confidence before God on the day of judgment. And as Paul goes on to say in that immediate context, uh, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time to believe. How is the time to renew or to place for the first time your trust in Jesus Christ who has taken away your sins, who fulfills every promise God has made, who brings you into the very presence of God? And how do we know it's enough for me? 
Well, chapter 12, verse 9, the only direct quotation of Jesus in the second letter to the Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We hear this call to repentance and we say, Lord, I know my heart. I know my sins. I know my struggles. I am weak and a failure. And he says, my son, my daughter, my grace is enough for you. Yes, you. Stop looking around to see who else I'm talking at. It's enough for you because my power is made perfect in your failure, your sin, your weakness, your discouragement. It's enough. You're mine. That's why Paul says straight away, examine yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? You are Christ's. He is yours. His grace is enough. His place, he has taken your place on the day of judgment. And he has brought you into the face, uh, into the presence of the face of the Father himself. We know him. We know him. This is our faith. This is what Paul has been uh, teaching the Corinthians through uh, his original visit, which was to plant the church, and now the subsequent letters and visits as he's applied it to them. And friends, verse 8, we cannot do anything against the truth, he says, but only for the truth. This truth of God's word will stand. Isaiah knew it. We thought of this last week. The Lord Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. The faith is revealed. It cannot be amended by the synods of the church. It cannot be weakened by the culture. It will be the same thing that if the Lord Jesus tarries, that the Christians in 2,000 years' time will believe, as we believe today, as Jesus originally taught it. Civilizations will rise and fall. Cultures will endlessly evolve. God's word stands firm. Do you believe it? Do you believe this gospel, this gospel? Because it alone can save you. And then finally, I must close uh, briefly. Are you serving one another? Uh, Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And here we're coming full circle back to where we began this series. Do you remember that uh, brief but powerful interview with Jim Packer who spoke of weakness being the way? All through this letter, we've seen Paul weak, full of the meekness of Christ and refusing the power techniques of the false apostles who have come in uh, so in tune with their culture and so in tune with ours. Look at his example just in this last chapter uh, in verse 4. To be sure, Jesus was crucified in weakness. What is the cross but the weakness of God? Yet he lives by God's power. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength, as Paul said back in the first letter. Well, likewise, Paul says, we apostles are weak in him. That is, we do not use human techniques. We do not use human power structures. We are among you to serve you. And by God's power, we will serve you the more. Or verse 7, not that people will see that we have stood the test, 
It's striking, isn't it? In schools, uh, we want our children to pass their exams uh, first and foremost. But we also know that that if they do not pass their exams, uh, then it is the leaders of the school who will come under a different sort of examination called Ofsted, and uh, they may pass a different judgment. And that there's always that mixed motive. We want the children to do well, but we'd also like to do well when Ofsted come and examine us who have been involved in school leadership. Well, look at Paul's attitude. Paul wants the Corinthians to pass the test, and he doesn't care about the spiritual Ofsted that might be done on his own ministry. Why? Because he's content to be one who, like Christ, lays everything down for the sake of those he is serving He doesn't care, not that people will see we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. It's true, actually, that the best schools are those who don't give a fig for Ofsted, but only care about what is the best outcome for their children. But it takes brave leaders to really make that the heart and center of the decisions that are made. Well, so it takes a really Christ-minded Christian to say, I don't care what you think of me. All I care about is that I have the opportunity to serve you. Or verse 9, we're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. It's not about building an empire or a legacy. All I care about, he says, is that you are strong in Christ. That's where he says our prayer is for your uh, renewing or restoration. Or again, verse 10, the authority of the Lord gave me. Yes, there is authority, but it's authority for building you up. It's authority for serving you, for caring for you, for getting you ready for that last examination when you will stand before Jesus Christ on the final day. Well, Jesus said of himself, I'm among you as one who serves. And here, Paul, his apostle, is taking the Lord Jesus as his model, as example. And the challenge for us in Paul himself is whether we too We'll follow his example as he follows the example of Jesus Christ. These then are the exam questions. Is your repentance real? Are you still believing in the apostolic Jesus and putting all your confidence in his promises? Are you learning from his example as you lay down your own life to serve others? What was very striking to me as these points emerged during the week was was there exactly the same uh, questions that John the Apostle asks in his first letter with a similar agenda at seeking to give reassurance to real Christians in the face of false teaching and the battle with ongoing sin. There his tests uh, are phrased slightly differently. Are you believing? Uh, Are you obeying? Are you loving? Whereas here in Paul it's are you trusting and repenting and serving Those same three golden threads pass through, and it shouldn't surprise us. He says, Paul and John are preachers not of themselves, but of the Lord Jesus. And so finally, brothers and sisters, verse 11, uh, goodbye. It's the same word for, and actually I think it's probably better translated here, as rejoice. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Look at who you are in Christ. Christ in you and you in him. You were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in him and by the Spirit of God. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. When someone sins, restore them gently. Encourage uh, one another to continue repenting and believing and serving. 
listen to my appeal, that is, listen to the word of Christ. Be of one mind, that is, have the mind of Christ. Live in peace, that is, in the peace of Christ. Let Christ be all in all, and then the God of love and peace will be with you. What a congregation you'll have. What a church it will be. People will say, see how they love one another. And they will be drawn in to come and find this new life for themselves. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Be demonstrative uh, in being the children of God together. All the saints, that is, from other churches, send their greetings. Don't forget, you're part just of a big worldwide family, including the good and godly people of uh, southwest Uganda in our Harambe partnership that we heard of briefly before. And as we know Christ like this, well, in his grace will bring us to know the love of the Father and hold us together in a fellowship that is truly the place where the Holy Spirit is in us and is in us together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've taught us many times that the day will come when we shall stand before you. And that should terrify us. And so please would you draw us to yourself as the only refuge on that day. We pray that we would heed your first words to repent and to believe the gospel. And that we would keep repenting and keep believing all the way to our lives end. And that we would live out our faith as we love and serve each other. Lord Jesus, be glorified among us. Grant that we would honor one another in the weakness of your ministry and cross and together know the power of your glorious resurrection as you build us together, send us out with the gospel and one day come to take us home. Amen.